0: We'll be reading Luke 24, 1 through 12. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices, spices which they had prepared. But they found a stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, That behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words.
1: Then they returned to the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, married the mother of James, and the other women with them, and told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter ran to the tomb, and stiffing down, saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marvelling at himself at what had happened. Now if you would turn To Ephesians chapter 2, we'll read the first 10 verses. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which he once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh. And of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. may be seated.
2: All right, we're going to be looking in the Word here. I appreciate the boys reading from Luke. We've, uh, you've heard a double dose of Luke 24 this morning. All right, that's good. Repetition, repetition in the Word helps us retain the Word. Uh, we'll be talking uh, much about this resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to be really launching a series today, uh, Resurrected. And we're going to begin with uh, the one who makes... Uh, this resurrection living possible, and that's Jesus. We're going to begin looking at Jesus making possible resurrected living. I just wrote it up on the board because that's the big idea of of today. It's the big idea probably also of the weeks to come. It's going to be the big idea, the big theme as we keep working through this. Uh, Before we jump in, I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer. God, we thank you this morning for bringing us here. We've gathered to worship a risen Savior. And we bow our hearts before you just now, Lord. And we ask that you would speak to us. That you would teach us. That you would fill us, Lord, with your spirit this day. That we might hear. That we might do. What you're teaching to us from your word. Over these next several weeks, Lord, we're speaking to this idea of resurrected living. And that kind of living only happens through and because of Jesus. So today, Lord, as we begin unfolding your word, help us to see the difference a resurrected Jesus makes. We ask, Lord, that you would change us, that you would shape us, transform our hearts, renew our minds, teach us what resurrected living looks like, and grant us faith to walk with you, trusting that you will take us by the hand, whether in the good times, in the challenging times. Lord, we ask that you would give us grace to handle anything that may come our way in these days ahead. We acknowledge this morning that you are the God of heaven and that you can be trusted. You know, there are lots of people today that are walking in a different direction, Lord, I pray that we would have the mindset of the psalmist who declares, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Lord, this morning we give ourselves to you and we ask that you would make us what you want us to be for your name's sake. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm hoping over these next five Sundays, as we open God's Word together, that we're going to discover what resurrected living is, what it looks like, how God's Word defines it, how God's Word characterizes it, how it gets worked out, how it gets walked out in the daily course of our lives. And I'm approaching this series of messages from the presupposition that resurrected living is possible. It's possible. It's possible to live this way. And it's possible because of one fundamental reason. We have a resurrected Jesus. A living Savior. And this is the big idea. Jesus makes possible resurrected living. Because you see a dead Jesus still in the grave. And you have no resurrected living possible. You have futility you have no hope. But a living, exalted, glorified Jesus, this makes possible resurrected living here and now in the present. But I need to tell you something this morning. There's another component to this resurrected living, church. The fundamental foundational core truth from the Bible is that Jesus makes possible resurrected living, but I need you to be ready for this. Resurrected living is also made possible through surrendered, yielded vessels available to God. Resurrected living is made possible because of Jesus. But how often are we our own worst enemies? Imagine being on a soccer team. Most of you probably know the game of soccer. As a ball, and it's like other, many other team sports with a ball, the objective is to score more goals than the other team. Kick it in the goal. Can you imagine kicking the ball in the wrong goal? Not by accident. You know the goal that you're supposed to be going toward. But here you are, you just keep kicking the ball down the field in the opposite direction how is it that God's redeemed people would even think about scoring for the opposition? I want you to see something critical to resurrection living. It's painful to watch someone score a goal. I've seen someone score a basket for the other team. Ah, oh, It's a little painful. It's equally painful to watch someone spend their days kicking the ball around, heading in the wrong direction, Seemingly unconcerned with scoring a goal, aimless, wandering, directionless, no sense of focus, no urgency to score. You see, resurrected living not only compels us to score, to use the soccer analogy, but more importantly to have a purpose for being on the playing field. We're here to give God the glory, to be at work for him, to serve him, to see that his name is honored and not profaned. And we're here to be witnesses to Jesus with this life, as a part of Christ's church, in the workplace, as a mother, as a father, as a son or a daughter. That's where we're going in the weeks ahead, by the way. We're going to address each of those areas. God's word has given us all great purpose for our stay here as pilgrims and sojourners. And each one of us is called to strive, to press onward, Paul says, toward the right goal with the objective to move the ball toward things that matter, eternal matters, soul-tending, disciple-making, catching men in these last days for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Resurrected living has a Christ-centered, heavenly-minded agenda. Resurrected living doesn't waste time. It doesn't settle for mediocrity. It doesn't make excuses. It doesn't just look for ways to get by. Resurrected living is, to use the words of Paul in Romans 6.13, it's to present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. And to see that these members of our body are used as instruments ...of righteousness to God. The Bible tells us that Jesus died. Having died, he then was buried in a borrowed tomb. It's interesting that it was a borrowed tomb... ...because he was there on borrowed time. He wasn't there very long. Third day, according to the scriptures... ...he was raised. Stone was rolled away. Risen. Resurrected. Just like he promised... The power that raised Jesus, listen, the power that worked in Christ when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, this is the same power available toward us who believe. That's not my opinion. That's actually in the scripture in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. The same power that raised Christ from the dead, seated him in the heavenlies, Is the same power available to us who believe? Church, perhaps this morning you need a reminder. Resurrection power is no small power. A few weeks back, I noticed that our water started turning cold. And progressively over a few days, the water kept gravitating toward cold. We have a sorely outdated water heater. we had a guy come and look at the water heater. It's in fact about 25 years old, the water heater. And when the service tech came a little closer, he's looking at the water heater. He says, did you know that this lever here is almost closed? And the lever that he's talking about was the gas line switch to the water heater. And there's a thermostat on there that wasn't even close to where it was supposed to be. A quick adjustment by the technician and the tank started to power up. The power to heat water effectively is one thing. But resurrection power, see the power to raise what was dead back to life, friends, that's not normal. But Jesus is raised from the grave, resurrected on the third day, just like he promised. The power, that power is available to those who believe. Do you believe in the Jesus that I'm speaking of this morning? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, fully man, fully God, born of the Virgin Mary, conceived of the Holy Spirit? Do you believe that this Jesus came to earth to save his people from their sins? Do you believe that Jesus died as a substitute in your place, taking your sins upon himself at the cross, nailing them to that cross, and in exchange, granting you by grace? It was a gift. You didn't earn it. By grace, he gives you his perfect righteousness. Do you believe that Jesus was raised up by God on the third day? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's what we're talking about this morning. This is an integral part to being saved. Romans 10 verse 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the testimony of the scripture. You see it takes faith, friends, to believe what we're talking about this morning. It takes faith. By definition, Hebrews 11:1 says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Romans 4:21 says that faith is being fully convinced that what God promises, he's also able to perform. Believing in the resurrected Jesus takes faith. You didn't see him raised up. You didn't see him die on the cross. But you believe it to be true. By faith you believe that what Jesus did is true. And many of you are standing upon that truth this morning. Praise God. And yet how tragic it is that the church can stand solely upon the truth in what I'll call the upward parts. Right here. The brain. In other words, I believe if we had time we'd go around this room... And we probably would get near full agreement that Jesus died, that Jesus was buried, that Jesus was raised on the third day. We probably would get a nod of the head on who Jesus is, why Jesus came. And yet what's called for is much more than belief in the upward parts. The Bible couples this belief with behavior, correct? Faith and works, working together, belief with reception, believe and receive, the Lord desires truth in the what church, inward parts, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, where there's I believe and I receive, there's then an acknowledgement from the Lord that you are a child of God, that's John chapter 1, 12 and 13. Resurrected living is powerful living. And the point of the power is not that we see ourselves strong. That's not the point. The point of the power is to see how God can take such a fragile clay pot and shape it to his liking. Remember the lyric of the song, Raised in his power, the weak become strong. We need to learn that his strength, his strength is perfect. So when I'm weak and his strength comes shining through, working in me, that's a good place to be. Resurrected living, church, only happens by having a relationship with God through his son, Jesus. Jesus. By being, what the Bible says, in Christ. Union with Christ. Our union, our connectivity with Christ. Listen, the only alternative is life that is dead. Life that is dead. Is that an oxymoron? Life that is dead? Think about that for just a moment. I've worked a lot of games over the last 11 years. And there are some gyms that carry a greater level of enthusiasm and atmosphere than others. I've worked some games where I've left thinking, sure was dead in there. Now by that statement, I'm not advocating a bunch of literal dead bodies in the gymnasium. I'm making a statement that what ought to be is not. See, perhaps it was no band playing. Perhaps it was no engaged fans in that place. Perhaps it was the two teams, and they just didn't seem to be competing all that much. They didn't seem real interested in what was going on that night. Maybe it was a lack of the popcorn smell, and I don't know that sounds funny, but it adds to the environment. bottom line is this. There's no life in here. No life. You know, this same idea, I was remembering years ago when Jennifer and I were dating. That's a long time ago, church. I still remember this, and she probably remembers this too. We were going out and I I don't know, I I, I don't even know how it all came about or or who decided it was a good idea. I probably thought it was a good idea and uh, it was a water park. We went to a water park. And we uh, paid the admission, we went in, and it wasn't long before we went in, we discovered that it was pretty much a dead water park. There weren't hardly anybody else there. Not many of the water rides were even open. There was no atmosphere there, for sure. It was dead. We left early. There was nothing happening there. You ever been to one of those kind of places? Dead? Maybe you're here this morning and and, and you're thinking about these descriptors and you're thinking about them in terms of your own life. I want to let you know this morning, Jesus makes possible resurrected living. Jesus is the one who's going to breathe life and provide hope for you. To move you from your dead place. I believe the Lord is teaching me something in particular about this resurrected living. You know, I can, I can stand and I can preach the gospel truths and you can parrot those truths back to me. And we can leave feeling really good that we all know the gospel truths. See, the next five weeks, really, as, as I'm envisioning them, as, as the Lord's putting them before me, they're really meant to crawl up in your lap, to peel away the layers and to get before God. Just you and God. You and God. This series is not intended to solely sharpen your intellectual capacitor, fill your brain with knowledge. It's it's instead to, to lay bare, to lead you to a place of submission, surrender, to yield these members to God as being alive from the dead. You see, there are many of you here that know the gospel. There are some of you here who may not know The core of the gospel, perhaps. So allow me on this day to, as we talk about the resurrection, I think it's important to at least catch you up to speed with what happened. And I'm going to use that familiar gospel record this morning in Luke 24. Isn't that great? Luke 24, you're already familiar with it. But if you turn to Luke 24, I'm going to use Luke's account of the resurrection. All four gospel writers talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Pretty important deal. All four writers write about it. It's pretty significant. Well, we see on the first day of the week, there were certain women who came to the tomb where Jesus was laid. And, and Jesus, if you back up just a chapter later in the gospel, you see that Jesus dies a criminal's death on the cross by the hands of Roman soldiers. And Jesus is, in, in Luke 23, verse 46, we see he breathed his last. If he breathed his last, church, what's that mean happen? He died. You stop breathing, you die. Jesus I like one of the other gospel writers, uh, gave up his spirit. He yielded his life. He laid down his life. No one took it from him. Well, the women saw where Jesus was laid in that tomb. And they went home and they prepared their burial spices and they rested on the Sabbath day according to the commandment. Well, on the dawn of that Lord's day... The women came to the tomb and they were expecting to anoint the body of Jesus with the burial spices that they'd prepared. But they found, according to chapter 24, verse 2, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. In fact, I love, I think it was Mark's gospel account that says that the women, as they were traveling, were wondering, how, who's going to roll the stone away? Well, by golly, they didn't even have to worry about that. When the Lord took care of it, the stone was rolled away. But Luke's account in verse 3 then says they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. They saw him. That's the tomb where he was laid. But now here they are Sunday morning early. They're going with their burial spices. Surely they're at the right tomb. And they go in and they do not find the body of Jesus. So they're standing there and they're a bit puzzled. At the absence of Jesus' body, and the women are taken aback by the presence then of two shining angels. Remember, here are these women hanging out inside a tomb on the third day since Jesus died. Angel begins by asking a very pointed question. I love this question. This is one of the reasons I love to use Luke's gospel when I'm talking about the resurrection because this question I think is just fantastic. Why do you seek the living, the idea of the original, why do you seek the living one among the dead? You see, dead people hang out in the tomb. The angel says, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He tells them what's happened, and then he reminds them why it's happened. He's not here. He's risen. That's what's happened. That's why his body's not here. He's risen. He's not here. And then he says, remember. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee. And he actually gives him the quote, gives him the line. Here's what he spoke. By the way, what he spoke includes the third day, rise again. This is why it happened. He said it was going to happen. So the testimony of the scriptures is that Jesus died, he was buried, and on the third day he was raised from the dead by the power of God, the person of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection power exerted to raise up Jesus is the same resurrection power available toward those who believe, thus making possible resurrected living. There's a hymn we sing, his power can make you what you ought to be. Know that line? His power can make you what you ought to be. His blood can cleanse your heart and set you free. His love will fill your soul and you will see t'was best for him to have his way with thee. It's actually a good idea that he has his way with you and with me. His power can make you what you ought to be. Resurrected living then happens only in Christ. And in Christ, resurrected living is submitting and yielding myself to God as being alive from the dead. His power working in me, upon me, through me. His power can make you As you sit here this morning, I want you to know this. This is important. His power can make you what you ought to be. This kind of resurrected living is anchored in a resurrected Jesus. But I would want you to know that long before Luke 24, in the account of the resurrected Jesus... God was painting for us a picture of what this resurrected living looks like. I want you to see it. I want you to grab a hold of it. And I want you to connect it to the message of the resurrected Jesus. Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel for just a moment. Chapter 36 and 37. In Ezekiel 36, God is speaking to his people in Babylonian exile. Through his prophet Ezekiel. And in the first half of Ezekiel 37... God takes Ezekiel and sets him in the midst of a valley. You might recall that valley. It's oftentimes referred to and described as a valley filled with dry bones. Remember that? In Ezekiel 36, God tells Ezekiel to speak to the land of Israel. Sort of an odd phrase. Speak to the land. Speak to the mountains of Israel. Why is he going to need to speak to the mountains of Israel? Here's what he's saying, essentially. This is the word to to the mountains of Israel. Get ready. My people are moving back in. He follows that up then by telling Ezekiel how the people landed in exile. In in 36 verse 17, it talks about an earlier before that. He says, when they dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. And he describes it in this way. He says in 36, 17, to me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Now, that's fairly descriptive of, of how they operated, what it was like to God. So he poured, what did he do? Was God just okay with it? No, here's what he did. He poured out his wrath on the people for the blood that they shed in the land and the idols that they erected in the land. And they were dispersed then to the nations and they continued, it says, and we see the record of this, they continued to profane his name. Listen to verse 20. Listen to what the nations said. When when, when they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, this is the nations. Here's what the nations are saying of God's people. These are the people of the Lord. And yet they have gone out of his land. Here's the turning point. As God shares with Ezekiel, what's about to happen? God has a concern for his holy name. He's letting Ezekiel know that he's going to do something out of concern for his name, not primarily because the people deserve it. Sounds like grace is ready to be extended. Sounds like mercy is about to be bestowed on a people unworthy and stubborn. Sounds like the makings of the gospel. He goes on. He says... I will sanctify my great name. Verse 23, Ezekiel 36. Which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Listen to the last part of this. This is so important to what we're talking about here. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord when I am hallowed, when I am revered, when I am feared in you before their eyes. When I am hallowed in you. Tell me, how does a rebellious and stubborn, sinful people ever represent the Lord God? God tells Ezekiel, the nations will know it when they see it. Is that still not true today? That the people around us are going to know that we are Christians by our love, by our love, right? That they're going to know about God as they see our good deeds and then they're going to be pointed to the Father in heaven. how are the nations going to see it? That becomes the question in the text in Ezekiel. God's people have been walking backward, not forward. They've been disobeying rather than obeying. They've been profaning his name instead of fearing his name. But God's not done. And he goes on and 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 I want you to listen to what he says to Ezekiel here. The nations shall know that I am the Lord when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. And God tells Ezekiel, I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to clean you up. You, listen, here's the subtext. Here's what's not there. Here's what's inferred. You on your own cannot clean yourself up. You can't do it. He says, I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all of your idols. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put a new spirit within you. I will put my spirit within you. Listen, my Holy Spirit. I'm going to put my Holy Spirit within you And here's what's going to happen. I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes. I'm going to cause you to. I'm going to move you. You know, sometimes our younger folks in the home need some direction. We have to move them as we're talking and instructing them. We have to, as the psalmist says, make them walk in the path of their parents' commandments. Amen? Dads and moms, sometimes that's the reality. He's putting the spirit, I will put my spirit in you, which is going to cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Jeremiah says the same thing in this way in chapter 32. He says, they shall be my people. I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way. One heart, one way. One heart, one way. That they may fear me forever for the good of them and the children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant. How long is this covenant? Everlasting. That I will not turn away from doing them good. But I, listen, I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. So God tells Ezekiel that the land of Israel that for so long sat desolate will be inhabited once again. He tells Ezekiel what what people are going to say in that day. I love this. At the end of 36. So they will say, verse 35, this land was desolate. This land that was desolate has become, listen to the descriptor. What's it become like? It's become like the Garden of Eden. Do you know anything about the Garden of Eden? Do you remember how God made the Garden of Eden? Do you picture when you think of the Garden of Eden, do you think of something that's drab, something that's gloomy, something that's, ugh, I just, ugh, oh, it's dead. No, we think quite the opposite. The Garden of Eden, beautiful, perfect. That's the kind of description the nations are saying. It's this land that was so long desolate. It's like the Garden of Eden and the wasted and the desolate and the ruined cities. Guess what? They're now fortified. They're now inhabited. There's big change that's going on in the land of Israel observable. It's going to be visible to the eye. And the change is going to be so drastic, in fact, so noticeable that the nations, listen, the nations are going to know that God's behind it all. That the Lord's the one who rebuilt it. The Lord's the one who planted it again. See, I believe this is the kind of change Jesus makes possible through his resurrection. So vastly different and new, we are a new creation in Christ. So vastly different and new that the nations will know it has to be God. I remember Fred, and Fred, I don't know what's happened to Fred. Something's got into Fred. Yeah, something's got into him. Jesus got into him. New life got into him. Christ is causing it, the Spirit in him is causing him now to walk in a new way. We're new creatures. Listen to the promise he gives Ezekiel in thirty six thirty six. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. See, faith is being fully convinced that what God's promised, he's able to perform. Friends, do you believe that God can do what he says? Here's the picture, then, that God gives Ezekiel. It's the familiar picture of the Valley of the Dry Bones. What we sometimes don't hear is what comes before the valley of the dry bones. Comes on the heels of what we just talked about in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 37 is a picture that's going to communicate in living color what he's just spoken of. And it's about the restoration. It's about the renewal of his people. And as you look to Ezekiel 37's picture, I want to first take you to verse 11. Take you to verse 11. Look in your Bibles, chapter 37, verse 11. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Here's why I wanted to read that verse first. This is the picture God gives Ezekiel, the valley of dry bones. God completes the picture and then delivers the connect point. Ezekiel, these bones are the house of Israel. I want to I paint the picture. I want to tell you who it is first. It's the house of Israel, these dry bones. And what was the state of the house of Israel? We see from the text. Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Do you know anybody who feels that way today? Dry, lost, without hope, feeling cut off. Therefore, God says to Ezekiel, speak to them these words. Ezekiel, here's what I want you to say to them. I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves. I will put my spirit in you. Verse 14, chapter 37. I will put my spirit in you and you shall what? You shall live. Resurrected living. You shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it. And performed it, there it is again. Then you'll know, when you're in the land, then you're going to know that I've spoken it and I've performed it. So how was God going to be hollowed in His people before the eyes of the nations? His plan was to put His spirit in his people. His spirit in them would cause his people to walk in his statutes to keep hold of his judgments and make a habit of doing them. So look back at the initial question that he asked Ezekiel in 37 verse 3. Son of man, I love the question. Son of man, can these bones live? And you get the idea that he sets him, plops him right down in the valley. And, and he, he says he goes all around and he gets this angle. I get, I get the picture he's looked at all the way around. He's checked this thing out from all angles. Can these bones live? And his answer is such an answer. I love the answer. Lord, you know. You know. But as he makes his way to look around the pile of dry bones, I'm sure there's this thought. Looks dead to me. Doesn't look like a whole lot of life here. God is asking him if this heap of dry bones can live. What's God doing? You know what I think he's doing? I believe he's testing Ezekiel's faith. See, because he's already talked to him about restoring the people in the land, putting his spirit in them in Ezekiel 36. He's already talked to him about this. Will Ezekiel answer in faith or will he allow his eyes, what he's looking at, a pile of dry bones? Will they allow what he's seeing to change his mind? You ever been there? Confronted with a situation that looks impossible and yet God has promised something from his word. You have the seen and you have the unseen colliding. The visible and the invisible intersecting. What are you going to do? What's your answer? Can these bones live? Remember that the bones of the whole house of Israel. A people who saw themselves as dry, hopeless, cut off from God. What's it take for such a people to live, to be raised up? And how does a pile of dry bones turn into something more than what it appears? By hearing the word of the Lord. And the word is this. Surely I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will build you from the inside out, bones need a covering. I'll put sinews on you and I'll put, bring flesh on you and I'll cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. It's important as you read Ezekiel 37, it's hard to miss it, but it's the breath in them that makes them come alive. Ezekiel sees the bones coming together, but still no breath and thus no life. Life. And look at verse 10. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath came into them. And what happened? They lived. Breath came into them. They lived and they stood up on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Breath came and they were raised up. The picture is one, God causing the breath to enter into his people. And upon entry, there's life. There's a raising up. Jesus makes resurrected living Possible And the testimony of the Scriptures is that the power available toward us who believe is according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. Romans chapter 6, 8 through 11 says, Now if we died with Christ, our union with Christ, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Once for all. But the life that he lives, who does he live it to? God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you fast forward two chapters, Romans 8, verses 8 through 11, you read these words. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We can't can't make ourselves better. (laughs) We can't do this in the flesh. You can't please God. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, listen, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, listen to this. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Life in the spirit. The spirit gives life. The spirit marks one as a child of God. No spirit of Christ in you, no life. Can these bones live? I've spoken it and I will perform it, says the Lord. I will bring you back to the land, which is part of that promise, but I have concern for my name. I will sanctify my great name. And in order to do that, God says, I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to put a new spirit within you. I'm not going to write on tablets of stone any longer. I'm going to write on your heart. I'm going to write it on your heart what I desire for you to do. I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and keep them and do them I'm going to put my Holy Spirit I'm going to put my spirit of power within you that you might fear me all of your days listen Jesus' resurrection was the validation of God's redemptive plan the stamp of approval if you will that what Christ did at the cross God the Father received and said yes it is done it is finished paid in full I'm sure there were many that gathered around the cross on that Friday afternoon and saw the state of Jesus hanging on the cross and thought to themselves, it's all over. No hope. Back to the way things were. Now what? Or as the companions on the road said, we were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. Remember those travelers on the road to Emmaus? They had this idea of what Jesus was going to be and do. Their master was dead. The one they looked to had breathed his last. It looked pretty bleak. It looked like the situation was hopeless. It looked like darkness had won. And that's the problem, friends, when all you do is deal with the seen. When all you do is deal with the visible. When all you do is fix your eyes on the tangible, what you can touch and feel, you're operating with limited resources. Can these bones live? That is a faith question. And the picture God gives to us through Ezekiel is one of hope. It's a picture that turns the impossible into possible. It's a picture that turns death into life. It takes what is dead and it makes it come to life. What looks impossible might seem well, it might seem out of the question. What appears to be a no-win situation in your life, the resurrection of Jesus is evidence that what God has promised is true. You see, it's the stamp of approval that Jesus is qualified, certified, fully able. You know, how many of you when you hire someone to do work, you want to know that they're certified? More certified technician?
0: Huh?
2: Someone who's on a list that you can trust. You want to know that they can actually do the work, right? You don't just want anybody coming in to your house trying to fix something. You want someone who's certified. Listen, God's given to us in his son someone who is certified, qualified, fully able to carry out and complete what's needed to raise up your pile of dry bones and breathe new life into them. Acts 17, 31, Paul speaking before the group in Athens. And he says, God now commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. See, this assurance that God gives is is grounded and rooted and established in the fact that he raised him from the dead. There's no assurance if he hasn't been raised. But he has been raised. Some of you are here today perhaps and you feel a lot like the people of Israel in exile. Dry bones, hope is lost, feel cut off completely from God. Maybe you know someone in that situation. God has promised to do for you exactly what he promised in his word. God takes dry bones, he covers them, but he breathes into them that they may be raised up again. He breathes life and they're raised. God takes hopeless situations and breathes hope into them. Hope does not disappoint, says the Bible, because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by whom? By the Holy Spirit who was given to us, Romans 5 verse 5. God takes those who've been far away and he brings them near. Through the blood of Jesus, that's Ephesians 2, 13. He rescues them, he adopts them, he places them in his family. He connects them to the head, which is Christ, and he attaches them to his people, which is the body. And together they are then built up into a holy temple for God in his glory. That's Ephesians 2. See, through Jesus who, who died and was raised to life, you can now present yourself to God as being alive from the dead. Those words in Ephesians 2, and you, he made alive. You, he made alive. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were what? Dead. Even when we were dead in trespasses. Made us alive. God made us alive together with Christ. And he puts it in parenthesis as though it's a parenthesis idea. By grace you've been saved. No, it's not a parenthesis idea for sure. Because he comes back to it and says, by grace you've been saved in verse 8. Romans 1 verse 4. Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's beginning the book of Romans. Talking about Christ who was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. By what? By the resurrection from the dead. I'm reminded of those words. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I'm his and he is mine. Bought with the precious blood of Christ. So no guilt in life. How so? Guilt and power of sin have been paid for completely by Jesus Christ. No guilt in life. No fear in death. How so? Christ conquered death. If I'm in Christ, I too, I'm a conqueror. I'm more than conqueror in Christ Jesus. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. It's the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry till final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home, whichever comes first. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. You see, Jesus makes resurrected living possible. Only his power enables you to stand. His power breathed in you causes you to walk. His power in you brings life. This is the power available to those who believe in the name of Jesus. And I hope and pray that you believe in his name this morning. That you repent. Of your sins, that you turn to God in faith, trusting that He is able to do what He's promised He'll do. And then that you'll live, that you'll carry out works befitting this repentant life, a life raised up, a resurrected kind of life with Christ. Jesus speaks these words as we close in Luke 24. 46 and 47, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins or forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem You know, the the thought occurred to me that this was to begin, wait in Jerusalem till the power from on high comes, and then you're going to be witness to me in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the end of the earth. You know what the thought that came to me as I was reading this? I'm a long ways away from Jerusalem. And so are you. The gospel that he's talking about being preached, there were people who by faith believed, That this Jesus died, was buried, and was raised. And they were willing to sacrifice their very lives to get that word out. From Jerusalem, from Judea and Samaria, to the very end of the earth. That's us. We're a long ways away from Jerusalem. Praise God, the gospel got to us. Amen. Let's do our part in these days ahead to see that the gospel keeps going, that we are preaching and teaching others to do the things Jesus commands us to do. Let's see that we carry this forward, that we don't drop the baton. We carry it forward and we start in our homes. We start in our neighborhoods, our friends, people that we know that we're connected with, but do not drop the treasure. Jesus makes possible resurrected living and we're going to talk more about this resurrected living in the weeks ahead let's pray father thank you for this good news thank you for your son and i pray lord that this church will be a church that is constantly looking to you fixing their eyes upon you the author and perfecter of the faith who for joy set before him he endured a cross scorning its shame he was raised up out of that tomb He spent 40 days preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God before he ascended where he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. Lord, I thank you for making us new creations in Christ. Remind us, Lord, of the power that is available to us, that resurrection power. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't boast in anything of our own, but we would boast only in that of Jesus Christ and what Christ has done for us. You are a mighty God. Truly, you are an all-powerful, mighty God. Turn our eyes upon you, I pray, in all things that we might walk in your power, we might walk in your strength, and that we might, to the end of our days, Lord, walk in a way that would point the nations to you. That when people see us, they see something quite different, and they can't help but think that it must be God, because that person wouldn't surely do what I just saw them do. Lord, help us to be your vessels available, surrendered, yielded to you to go where you've called us to go, to say what you've called us to say. And Lord, I pray we would delight in bringing the change into the world through your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would be your vessels just to pour out this love, pour out this hope and encouragement to other people that you've given to us. Father, I pray that our hope would be found in Christ alone. Thank you for Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.